Part Two of Nor Iron Bars a Cage by Randall Garrett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. I was in my office at nine the next morning, after seven and a half hours of sleep on one of the bunks in the ready room. The business with Hammerlock Smith had taken more time than I had thought it would. The big, stupid ape had been in a vicious mood, reeking of whiskey and roaring insults at everyone. His cursing was neither inventive nor colorful, consisting of only four unlovely words used over and over again in various combination with ordinary ones, a total vocabulary of maybe a dozen words. It had taken four cops using nightsticks to get him into the paddy-wagon, and Dr. Brownlee had finally had to give him a blast of super-tranquilizer with a hypo-gun. "'Boy, Inspector,' one of the officers had said, "'don't let anyone ever tell you some of these guys aren't tough.' I was looking over the written report. "'What about this kid he accosted in the bar? Hurt bad?' "'Cracked rib, sprained wrist, and a bloody nose, sir. The doc says he'll be okay.' According to the report here, the kid was twenty-two years old. Smith usually picks him younger. The cop grinned. <laughs> Smith had to get his eventually, sir. This guy looks pretty young, but he was a boxer in college. He probably couldn't have whipped Smith, but he had guts enough to try. Think he'll testify? Said he would, sir. We already got his signature on the complaint while he was at the hospital. He's pretty mad. Smith's record was long and ugly. Of the eight complaints made by young boys who had managed to brush off or evade Hammerlock's advances, six hadn't come to trial because there were no corroborating witnesses, and the charges had been dismissed. Two of the cases had come before a jury and had resulted in acquittals. Cold sober, Smith presented a fairly decent picture. It was hard to convince a jury of ordinary citizens that so masculine-looking a specimen was homosexual. The odd thing was that the psychopathic twist which got Hammerlock Smith into trouble had been able to get him out of it again. Both times Smith's avowal that he had done no such disgusting thing had been corroborated by the lie detector test. Smith, when he was sober, had no recollection of his acts when drunk and apparently honestly believed that he was incapable of doing what we knew he had done. This time, though, we had him dead to rights. He had never made his play in a bar before, and we had three witnesses, plus an assault and battery charge. As Inspector Cleek had said, we get him eventually. But at what cost? How many teenage boys had been frightened or whipped into doing as he told them, and then had been too ashamed and sick with themselves to say anything? How many young lives had been befouled by Smith's abnormal lust? And if Smith spent a year or two in Sing Sing, how many more would there be between the time he was released and the time he was caught again? And how long would it be before he obligingly hammered the life out of his young victim, so that we could put him away permanently? This was the system that Cleek and a lot of other men on the force swore by. That was the system that the boys in Homicide and in the Vice Squad thought I was trying to foul up by babying the zanies. It's a hell of a great system, isn't it? I called the hospital and talked to the doctor who had taken care of Smith's victim. 
Then I called Cleek to see if there had been any break in the Donahue case. There hadn't. Finally I called my son, Steve, at the apartment we shared, told him I wouldn't be home that night, and sacked out in the ready room. By nine o'clock I was ready to go back to work. At nine-thirty Cleek called. His saggy face looked sleepier and more bored than ever. No rest for the weary, Roy. I got a call on a killing on the Upper East Side. Some rich gal with too much time on her hands was having an all-night party, and she got herself shot to death. It looks like her husband did it, but there's plenty of money involved, and the deputy commissioner wants me to handle it personally all the way through. I'm putting Lieutenant Schultz in charge of the homicide end of the Donahue case, but I told him you were the man to listen to. He'll report directly to you if there's any new leads, okay? Okay with me, Sam. As I said, Cleek is a good cop in spite of his system. The boys are out making the rounds, he went on, bringing in all the men with conviction records and questioning the others, and we're combing the neighborhood for the kids' clothes. They might still be around somewhere. Schultz will keep you posted. Fine, Sam. Happy hunting in high society. Thanks, Roy. Take it easy. At fifteen of eleven, the police commissioner called. He spent ten minutes telling me that I was going to be visited by a V.I.P. and giving me exact instructions on how to handle the man. I'm depending on you to take care of him, Roy, he said finally. If we can get this program operating in other places, it will help us a lot. And if you need help from my office, grab the nearest phone. I'll do my best, I promised him. And thanks, sir. The commissioner was a lawyer, not a cop, so he wasn't as tied to the system as Cleek and the others were. He was backing me all the way. I punched Sergeant Vaney's number on the intercom. Inspector Royal here. Sergeant, do me a favor. Yes, sir. Go down to the library and get me a copy of Burke's Peerage. Burke's which, sir? I repeated it and spelled it for him. He didn't waste any time. He had it on my desk in less than twenty minutes. When the VIP arrived, I had already read up on Chief Inspector, the Duke of Accrington. Here is how he was listed. Accrington, 7th Duke of Robert St. James Accrington, Baron Benevis of Scotland, KCB, born 7 November 1950, B.S. M.S. Oxen, cum laude, married 1977, Lady Susan Burley, second daughter, Viscount Burley, two sons, Richard St. James, Philip William. Joined Metropolitan Police, 1975, C.I.D., 1976, Deputy Inspector, 1980, Inspector, 1984, Chief Inspector, 1990. Awarded George Medal for Extraordinary Heroism during the False War, 1981. Author, Criminal Law and the United Nations, The Use of Forensic Psychology, Police Textbook, and The Night People, Fiction, under Nom de Plume, R. A. James, Clubs, Royal Astronomical, Oxonian, Baker Street Irregulars, Motto, Amicus Curiae. I had to admit that I was impressed, but I decided to withhold any judgment until I had met the man. He was right on time for his appointment. The car pulled up to the parking lot with a sergeant at the wheel, and I got a bird's-eye view of him from my window as he walked out of the car and headed for the door. 
I had to grin a little. The commissioner had obviously wanted to take the visitor around personally, roll out the rug for royalty, so to speak, but he had had a conference scheduled with the mayor and some federal officials, and after all the duke was only there on police business, not as ambassador from the court of St. James. So he ended up being treated just as any visitor from Scotland Yard would be treated. He was shown directly to my office, and I gave him a quick once-over as he came in the door. Tall, about six feet even, weighed about one-seventy-five, none of it surplus fat, light brown hair smoothed neatly back, almost no gray, eyes blue-gray, with finely etched lines around them that indicated they'd been formed by both smiles and frowns, face rather long and bony, with thin, firm lips, and a longish, thin, slightly curved nose. He wore good clothes, and he wore them well. His age I knew. It was the same as mine. It was the first time I had ever seen a man who looked like a real aristocrat and a good cop rolled into one. He had an easy smile on his face, and his eyes were taking me in, too. I stand an inch under six feet, but I'm a little broader across the shoulders than he, so the ten more pounds I carry doesn't make me look fat. My face is definitely not aristocratic, wide and square, with a nose that shows a slight bend where it was broken when I was a rookie, heavy dark eyebrows, and hair that is receding a little on top and graying perceptibly at the sides. The eyes are a dark gray, and I'm well aware that the men under me call me Old Flint Eye when I put the pressure on them. I'm Chief Inspector Ackrington, he said pleasantly, giving me a firm handshake. It's a pleasure to meet you, Your Grace, I said. I'm Inspector Royal. Sit down, won't you? I gestured toward one of the upholstered guest chairs, and sat down in the other one myself, so we wouldn't have a desk between us. Have a good trip across? I asked. Fine, except, of course, for the noise. Noise? I knew he'd come over in one of the Transatlantic Airways' new inertia drive ships, and they're supposed to be fairly quiet. His smile broadened a trifle. <laughs> exactly. There wasn't any. I'm rather used to the vibration of jets, and these new jobs float along at a hundred thousand feet in the deadest silence you ever heard, if you pardon the oxymoron. Everybody chatted like a flight of startlings just to keep the air full of sound. I chuckled. Maybe they'll put vibrators on them just to make the people feel comfortable. I read that the men in the moonships complain about the same thing. So I've heard. But actually the silence is a minor thing when one realizes the time one saves. When one is looking forward to something interesting, traveling can be deadly dull. It was beautiful the way he did it. He had told me, plainly, that he wanted to get down to business and cut the small talk, and he'd done it in such a way that the transition was frictionlessly smooth. "'Not much scenery up there,' I said. "'I hope you'll find what we're trying to do here has a few more points of interest.' "'I'm quite sure it will, from what I've heard of your pilot project here. That's why I want to, well, sort of be a hanger-on for a few days, if that's all right with you.' Before I could answer, the phone blinked. I excused myself to the Duke and cut in. The image that came on the screen was almost myself, except that he had his mother's mouth, and was twenty-odd years younger. "'Hi, Dad,' he said with that apologetic smile of his. "'Sorry to bother you during office hours, but could I borrow fifty? Pay you back next week.' 
I threw a phony scowl at him. Running short, eh? Have you been betting on the stickball teams again? He cast his eyes skyward and raised the three fingers of his right hand. Scout's honor, Dad. I spent it on a new turbine for my Electra-Ford. Then he lowered his hand and looked down from the upper regions. I really did. I forgot that I was supposed to take Mary Ellen out this evening. Car happy, I guess. Can you advance the fifty? I threw away my phony scowl and gave him a smile. Sure, Stevie. How's Mary Ellen? Swell. She's all excited about going to the art ball tonight. That's why I didn't want to disappoint her. Slow up, son, I told him. You've already made your pitch and been accepted. You'll get your fifty, so don't push it. Want to come down here and pick it up? Can do. And have I told you that you'll be invited to the wedding? Thanks, pal. Can I give the groom away? It was a family joke that we'd kicked back and forth ever since he had met Mary Ellen two years before. Sure thing. See you in a couple of hours. Bye, Dad. He cut off, and I looked at the Duke. Sorry. Now, you were saying? Perfectly all right, he smiled. I have two of my own at home. At any rate, I was saying that the Criminal Investigation Department of New Scotland Yard has become interested in this uh, experiment of yours, so I was sent over to get all the first-hand information I can. Frankly, I volunteered for the job. I was eager to come. There are plenty of skeptics at the yard, I'll admit it, but I'm not one of them. If the thing's workable, I want to see it used in England. Here was another man who wasn't tied to the system. Do you mind if I ask some questions? he said. Go ahead, Your Grace. If I can't answer them, I'll say so. Thanks. First off, I'd like to tell you what I do know. Get my own knowledge of the background straight, so to speak. Now, as I understand it, the courts have agreed, temporarily at least, that any person convicted of certain types of crimes must undergo a psychiatric examination before sentencing, right? That's right. Then, depending on the results of that examination, the magistrate of the court may sentence the offender to undertake psychiatric therapy instead of sending him to a penal institution, such time in therapy not to exceed the maximum time of imprisonment originally provided for the offense under the law. His sentence is suspended, in other words, if he will agree to the therapy. If, after he is released by the psychiatrists, he behaves himself, he is not imprisoned. If he misbehaves, he must serve out the original sentence, plus any new sentence that may be imposed. Have I got it straight so far? Perfectly. As I understand it, you've had astounding success. He looked, in spite of what he had said about skepticism, as though he thought the reports he'd heard were exaggerated. So far, I said evenly, not a single one of our patients has failed us. He looked amazed, but he didn't doubt me. And you've been in operation for how long? A little over a year since the first case, but I think the record will stand the same way five, ten, fifty years from now. You see, Your Grace, we don't dare lose a man. If one of our tame zanies goes haywire again, the courts will stop this pilot project fast. There's a lot of pressure against us. In the first place, we only work with repeaters. You know the type. The world is full of them. 
boys that are picked up over and over again for the same kind of crime. He nodded. They're the ones we wait for, the ones we catch, convict, and send to prison, and then wait until they get out, and then wait some more until they commit their next crime, so that we can catch them and start the whole cycle over again. That's them, I said. When they're out, they're just between crimes, that's all. And that puts the police in a hell of a position, doesn't it? You know they're going to fall again. You know that they're going to rob or hurt or kill someone. But there's nothing you can do about it. You're helpless. No police force has enough men to enable a cop to be assigned to every known repeater and follow him night and day. In this state, if a man is convicted of a felony for a fourth time, a life sentence is mandatory. But that means that at least four victims have to be sacrificed before the dangerous man is removed from society." The Duke nodded thoughtfully. "'Sacrifice is the word. Go on.' "'Now, the type of crime we're working with, the kind we expect future laws to apply to, is strictly limited. It must be a crime of violence against a human being or a crime of destruction in which there is a grave danger that human lives may be lost. The sex maniac, the firebug, or the goon who gets a thrill out of beating people, or the reckless driver who has proven that he can't be trusted behind the wheel of a car. We can't touch the kleptomaniac, or the common drunk, or the drug addict. They're already provided for under other laws. And those habits are not, by themselves, dangerous to the lives of others. A good many of our kind of zany do drink or take drugs, about fifty percent of them, but what they're sentenced for is crimes of violence, not for guzzling hooch or mainlining heroin. My phone chimed. It was Lieutenant Schultz of Homicide. His square blocky face held a trace of excitement. Inspector Royal. Inspector Cleek told me to report to you if there was any news in the Donahue case. What is it, Lieutenant? We're pretty sure of our man. Scrapings from the kid's fingernails gave us his blood type. The computer narrowed the list down quite a bit with that data. Then a few minutes ago, one of the boys found the kid's clothes stuffed in with some trash paper in the back stairwell of a condemned building just a couple of blocks from where we found her last night. And get this, Inspector, she was wearing a pair of those shiny patent leather shoes, practically brand new, and they have prints all over them. His are over hers, since he was the last one to handle them. And there's only the two sets of prints. We just now got positive identification. Grab him and bring him in, I said. I'll be right down. I want to talk to him. His face fell a little well, it isn't going to be as easy as all that, sir. Uh, you see, we'd already checked at his last known address earlier this morning, before we got the final check on the blood type. This guy left the rooming house he was staying in, checked out two days ago, just a short time after the girl was killed. I figured that looked queer at the time, so I had two of my men start tracing him in particular, but there's not a sign of him so far. I untensed myself. Okay, what's his record? periodic drunk, goes for weeks without touching the stuff. Then he goes out on a binge that lasts for a week sometimes. Name's Lawrence Nestor, alias Larry Nestor, twenty-eight years old, six feet one, slight build, but considered fairly strong. 
brown hair, brown eyes, speaks with a lisp due to a dental defect. The lisp becomes more noticeable when he's drinking. He turned the page of the report he was reading from. Arrested for drunkenness four times in the past five years, got off with a fine when he pleaded guilty. He molested a little girl two years ago and was picked up for questioning, but nothing came of it. Uh, the girl hadn't been physically hurt, and she couldn't make a positive identification, so he was released from custody. Officers on duty in the neighborhood report that he has frequently been seen talking to small children, usually girls, but he wasn't seen to molest them in any way, and there was no complaints from parents, so no action could be taken. Lieutenant Schultz looked up from the paper. He's had all kinds of jobs, but he can't hold them very long. Goes on a binge, doesn't show up for work, so they fire him. He's a pretty good short-order cook, and that's the kind of work he likes, if he can talk a lunchroom into hiring him. He's also been a busboy, a tavern porter, and a janitor. One other thing. The superintendent at the place where he was staying reports that he had an unusual amount of money on him, four or five hundred dollars, he thinks. Doesn't know where Nestor got the money, but he's been boozing it up for the past five days. Bought new clothes, hat, suit, shoes, and so on. Living high on the hog, I guess. End of Part Two